Namaste, everybody. Welcome to Twig 58. Today, we'll be covering three articles, and then Eric will actually do some reviews on some of the predictions that we've made here on Twig. But the first article is Network Raises $40 million for Platform to Help Mobile Games Gain Traction. The second article is How a Chinese Developer at Tencent is Shaping the Future of Gaming. And the third is Has the Hypercasual Game Genre Peaked? How's it going, Eric? So today, it's just you and me. Yes, I feel a bit lonely here without <laughs> without everybody. It's just Joseph and I. But congratulations to Adam on his first child, a girl. I think everyone's healthy and happy right now. Not for long, though, because having a baby is a terrible, terrible experience, as I've said many times. But yeah, so Adam will not be with us for, for a little while until he gets everything settled with his new baby girl. But So congrats. And also on my side, I just got back from India, from India GDC, which I thought was actually a really good event. And I was actually quite pleasantly surprised at the conference because I wasn't you know, quite sure what to expect. But definitely they put a good group of people together. And you can basically meet like most of the Indian mobile gaming market from the single event, get a lot of info and context about the Indian market as well, which is currently undergoing a lot of changes. And I was actually surprised at meeting quite a few good game studios out there that I was quite impressed by. Anyway, anything else on, on your end, Adam? Or, sorry, Eric? Uh, yeah. Um, Jacob won another tournament this weekend. Uh, Zaza Pachulia was there with his son. Uh, very nice guy. Took a picture with the, with the team. Um, started with the Warner Brothers last week. Uh, basically going there, like trying to go there one day a week on Tuesdays. Uh, to get my groove back, you know, to actually learn something rather than just, you know, talking trash all the time. Um, Wait, does, does this mean that there won't be any Warner Brothers trash talking? Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, wait till the end of the podcast. We'll talk about. Uh, uh, all right. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, all's good. Uh, I can't can't complain. Let's see. Yeah, actually looking forward to this break, having the, my wife's Korean family for Thanksgiving eat some turkey, stay away from politics, and try to relax. That's nice. the goal. Um, any plans for Thanksgiving for you? No, not really. Pretty low-key, just, you know, hanging out with family, stuff like that. That's basically it. Nothing special. Cool. All right, well, let's get into it. So the first article is about Network, our friends in San Francisco. Uh, they raised an additional $40 million uh, to help Mobile games gain traction is what it says. Uh, basically, fundamentally, they're just building, uh, they're basically raised the 40 million to invest in more games. Uh, their publishing platform, which they call Scale, and their audience network platform, which is, I guess, a way for the audience to communicate with each other <laughs> in the games. Um, we actually mentioned this before, you know, when they announced that Tetris license. It was clear at that time that we thought that they were starting a process to get another financing round, and it looks like we were correct on that front. Um, in my opinion, so far, I, mean, I haven't really spoken to many people in the company. Uh, one of the guys, the general counsel there, is an old friend from like the early, late 90s, uh, Patrick, uh, who is their GC and, and biz dev guy. But I, I see him at tournaments, but I never really talked to him about the business. But from my perspective, nothing really has changed there. You know, they've had some amazing success with Legendary Heroes, which continues to contribute around $5 million a month in revenue. But they have not really seen any other successes on their success or scale platform. And I really honestly don't see as much going on with the audience network platform at this stage. You know, the, the Donuts game they had for a while uh, was kind of a proof of concept that the scale platform could 
be leveraged against different uh, genres, but it, it never really left soft launch and seems to be all but abandoned at this point. Um, we haven't seen the Tetris game come to market yet. So wait and see if they can execute against, um, you know, their quote unquote three pillars with this new game. Uh, but, you know, Tetris is an interesting IP, definitely more mass market and casual. So we'll see if they can leverage their tech and tools to bring that to market. But, you know, like Neil Young, if anybody's ever heard Neil Young's speech, he's kind of another guy like Walter Driver, right, um, at Scopely, who basically could sell ice to Eskimos. Like the guy, I've never seen a guy that is pitched so masterfully as, as Neil Young. Um, I met Neil Young at EA when I worked briefly with him on Majestic, which was definitely an idea before its time. Majestic was like kind of this scientific thriller that used AOL Instant Messenger back in the day, BlackBerry messages, fax, internet sites, and basically to pull players and propel them through this narrative of conspiracy, et cetera. You'd get a you know call from Majestic to go visit a website and avail your next puzzle to figure it out. It was a really, really cool concept, but really, really tough on execution and ultimately was not commercially successful. But if you hear Neil Young talk about this thing, it was going to take over television. It was going to take over <laughs> the box office. And after you left the room, you not only believed Neil believed, but you became a believer yourself. Like it was almost like a cult leader. The guy is just has the charisma and the faith of the vision. And it's, it's just, it's truly remarkable to listen to this guy talk. So Neil, I, I, hats off that your abilities there. Um, so basically now Neil's kind of trying to sell this vision that he can create, you know, a unique advantage from both a marketing platform to, uh, and from a social platform perspective. Um, and to, from the social platform, it's like bringing the community together around the game. And from the networking marketing platform, it's bringing this thing to market and getting an advantage out there. You know, it does sound amazing on paper, but obviously the key is execution. So fundamentally, we just need to see examples of how it would work outside of their really successful game, um, Legendary of Heroes. And I guess, again, it'll be key to see how they can apply it to other genres. And something like Tetris, which is a bit more casual, will be an interesting test. So we'll see how they can execute against that and and, and continue on their hopeful, hopefully successful run. What do you think, Joseph? Uh, so I'll only see a few things here and then won't comment too much. I think, first of all, according to the article, uh, Network imagines its business along three business lines. So the way they, they describe it is first against internal game development, second, publishing with what sounds like a focus on building technology infrastructure. And I think that part makes sense. And third, audience network. But really, when you, when you talk about the business or when you think about the business, it's really internal game development and third-party external publishing. And so like the second and third parts, the way Neil Young describes it, are really just kind of fancy executive double talk for, for you know, that publishing business. Uh, the second point to make is that usually if, I mean, if I'm applying kind of industry pattern recognition on, on this kind of a move, these kinds of shifts oftentimes mean that the main business could be in trouble. So just kind of checking Sensor Tower kind of confirmed that revenue for Legendary has been in decline since August of 2018 when revenue peaked at $6 million. And this past month in October, we're seeing a decline down to $4 million, so about a one-third drop from peak. And I think from here, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit careful. You know, we're, we're a little bit careful when we've got friends at different companies and things like that. But... Um, I don't know. I'll just say that these kinds of moves, I'm a little bit concerned about, but I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on to the uh, <laughs> next Stop article. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> say what you think, man. 
Express uh, yourself. You can explode. Yeah, I, I don't want to go full Eric Kress here. So, <laughs> but anyway, let's let let let's move on. Anyway, the second article is how a Chinese developer at Tencent is shaping the future of gaming. And um, this article from Fortune focuses on Timmy Studios, which is Tencent's largest internal game studio. And Timmy itself is actually a collection of a number of separate studios that form Timmy overall. And this article is an interview with uh, the head of, of Timmy named, uh, his name is Colin Yao. And I just wanted to uh, talk about a few of the key takeaways from the article. First is that Timmy's first big, big success was QQ Speed for the PC in 2004. And this remains one of China's top games and actually one, one, of, uh, one of the world's largest mobile games. Uh, and then Timmy's next big hit came in 2015 with Honor of Kings, which is basically League of Legends on mobile. At its peak in 2017, Honor of Kings had 200 million Mao. And in 2018, reportedly made 2 billion in profit. So pretty massive. The second point is that the article speaks to kind of these big macro trends impacting the China market and how that would likely impact Timmy. Um, and the first thing that they talked about is the lack of a console gaming market in China, which they say probably pushed China towards more casual games. I kind of disagree with this personally, but I do think that that did have an impact in terms of not having a console market there in terms of the player base and how players view and play games. And the second is the regulation in China impacting Tencent's business, which should cause it to look towards overseas markets. And then the third point is against that last point, because of the regulation and because there is a lot of opportunity outside of China, the article suggests that Tencent and Timmy will look more aggressively to do co-dev for overseas games and suggest a focus on IP-based games. And I, I think that's definitely correct. And we kind of see examples of that in the marketplace today, including uh, the most recent collaboration CODEV with Activision for Call of Duty. And so my own personal take on this is that, you know, yes, Timmy is, you know, definitely Tencent and possibly China's and possibly the world's best mobile game studio, uh, arguably. And that that conclusion, again, is, is definitely right. We also see that Tencent is building out a big new headquarters in L.A. for the U.S. market. And uh, I think we can continue to expect Tencent to try and do uh, big co-developments, partnerships with U.S. companies to build out um, games for the overseas markets and really to try and blow out major tentpole titles. Eric, what's your take? Yeah, we mentioned this before in the uh, in the podcast, and I don't want to get too political, but uh, I'm more and more disturbed by the kind of the unfairness in 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 the ability for Tencent to make investments. You know, Tencent and other Chinese like companies like Netmarble can not only invest but also acquire Western companies. While North American companies or Western companies not only can invest, but they can't even operate in China, China without an Asian joint venture or an Asian partnership. And you know, clearly, we're not in a level playing field. And so, while these great profiles of these amazing guys that have made some amazing experiences, you know, they the, the deck is stacked <laughs> with them. You know, so it's a little bit. I don't know. I find it a little bit disturbing to some degree. Um, when I was at Kabam, you know, six years ago, we were talking to these guys and, and they're basically saying, hey, you know, we're really worried about China, you know, the regulations and all these issues around uh, bringing games to market. So they're really looking aggressively to build operations in the West. But I think since that time, you know, they've had a lot of success, right? And they've done a lot of big acquisitions, a lot of partnerships, et cetera. And, but I think also the Chinese market continued to outpace expectations. And while 
So not only were they successful in their local markets, they were successful in building out their operations in the West. So things like Riot, Epic, Grinding Gear, Supercell, Shark Mob, Bumcom, Bat Shark, Cacao, Paradox, all these Discord even, are all have been investments by, by, uh, by China in the West. But, but you know, you haven't seen any of these type of investments uh, from Western companies in the East because you just can't do it, you know? And so some of these companies are kind of the biggest names in gaming over the past t- 10 years. And, and you just, we just haven't been able to do that from a Western perspective. And I think it's a little bit unfair. So I don't want to get too political, but I really think there should be some equity here. I'm not suggesting anything because I really have no idea how to get anything done in China. But I do think we should start limiting investment in U.S. gaming companies, you know, <laughs> until like they start opening up their market uh, to Western companies as as we have to theirs. So, but that's kind of my quick quick rant on this. But this is a what's interesting is this is exactly the example of the unfairness that we see, you know, that for the politicians are talking about. Right, we're actually living it, you know, and right. uh, and to some degree, I don't know what the solution is here, but uh, but. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, next. All right. So the next article is, has the hyper-casual game genre peaked by our friend Eric Seifert at Mobile Dev Memo. And this article talks about how since Voodoo raised $200 million in May of 2018, the hyper-casual market has changed. And uh, what we've seen is that Ketchup and Voodoo have both declined a lot, and the market has splintered across multiple publishers now. And in this article, uh, Eric Sufer gives three primary reasons why he believes hypercasual has peaked. And the first reason is that, you know, he argues that it's now just way too easy, fast, and cheap to fast follow any games that launch, and especially with some of these new platforms that are launching around, you know, no code based engines that will allow you to really quickly and easily make games. The second is that um, Eric Seifert describes a bit of a pyramid scheme related to the ad inventory from hypercasual games. His point is that ad networks to some degree prefer hypercasual games because it represents new inventory. So new ads and new games that hit high Dow are given a premium by ad networks. However, ads in hypercasual games actually perform very poorly given the, the type of audience that plays those games. And so, you know, it, it, it's kind of taken some time for ad networks and advertisers to realize this, uh, but then now uh, advertisers are adjust, you know, adjusting via blacklisting, meaning you know, stopping advertising in those games. And and more recently, hyper. Uh, <clears throat> uh, basically, what what happens is is that after they're blacklisted, a hyper casual game publisher will just launch their next hyper casual game, so it doesn't matter to that. Uh, that much, but now we're seeing that uh, as advertisers get more wise to this, they'll just blanket blacklist all hypercasual games, which then now leads to this phenomenon which uh, Eric Kress has talked about before, where there's like this, you know, hypercasual games just advertising to each other. And then finally, um, Eric Seifert argues that the rise in programmatic media buying is bringing more transparency to mobile user acquisition, including the ability to target high spend users. However, uh, the point here being that most of the traffic on hypercasual do not have those high spenders, and so that traffic could get ignored by uh, this rise in programmatic media buying. And the final side note um, Eric makes, which I totally agree with, is to kind of look at the market from the actions of the biggest companies in the space. And so what we're seeing is 
you know, for example, companies like Voodoo, which are now actively building and investing outside of the hyper-casual genre. Anyway, Eric, what's your take? Yeah, I'll be really quick on this. Um, in my opinion, hyper-casual has always been a race to zero, right? It's a completely circle jerk between hyper-casual developers and advertisers. And I think the two or three key points here. One, 60% of the advertising is from other hyper-casual companies. Two, the rest of the inventory is almost completely worthless for real UA with the exception of other hyper-casual games. And three, to the point that you just made, is now these hyper-casual guys are introducing features and and progression that make it not a hyper-casual game, right? So ultimately, this has always been a big recipe for disaster. Um, and I think you know Eric does a much more technical and better explanation of why. But from my perspective, those are the kind of the three key points that makes this uh, train wreck rating to happen. So no, no, uh, I'm trying to be consistent here on this one. <laughs> okay. So finally, um, so we're going to review some of our predictions, right? And not to break our arms, patting ourselves on the back here, but we'll do a little bit of that. Okay. So the Harry Potter update. Um, so they have had about 17 million downloads and 15 million in revenue, which is actually not a bad revenue per install, but clearly a disappointing result for them. And far below Jurassic Park, which was actually my kind of, I thought they would actually beat Jurassic Park at the time. So again, we think it's a combination of both the design of the game, collecting stickers for a sticker book is ridiculous, and then also some IP mismatch of uh, compelling those type of players to spend money is kind of a challenge. Um, and it could be just more of a limiting factor around the license uh, and lack of a fervent audience that's, yeah, again, willing to spend. So it looks like I was even a little bit overly ambitious on this, where I said they would do basically my over under was 50 million. I think getting to 50 million is going to be really challenging. But certainly I was more right than Mishka, who said he was going to get to 100 million. Um, 100 million walking backwards was his quote. So one for me, negative for Mishka on that one. Um, the next one. Oh, and then you compare this to something like uh, Dragon Quest Walk from Square Enix, and thanks to Eric Jackson for showing me this guy. So this thing came out in uh, in Japan only, and it's basically a hardcore uh, Pokemon style game. I would I say in Japan, and this thing is freaking minting money, right? One point five million downloads and one hundred and five million in revenue within like a few weeks. You know, and why? Because the overlap between spenders and Dragon Quest is absolutely massive, right? And and it's exactly the same style of game where you're walking around and 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 collecting these characters, upgrading them and battling them, right? Um, and certainly they're not limited by the design, sorry, by the license, the similar to the way Harry Potter was. And so these are the type of IPs that can really take advantage of this type of gameplay, of this location-based style of gameplay and collection and upgrade, et cetera things like Star Wars, Marvel, et cetera. So just, again, I think Harry Potter is just a mismatch for this type of game. All right, the second one is Mario Kart. So Mario Kart's sitting at 132 million downloads and 40 million in revenue um, with a 32 cent RPI, which is exactly what you would expect it to be, given that's what the fuck it was in beta. Uh, but no one seems to, everyone seemed to think that this might outperform, right? <laughs> so it's basically performing almost exactly as expected because I basically said 200 million downloads and 100 million in revenue in 12 months. Um, and then I raised it to 150 because I got spooked because of the uh, gotcha, but I should have known they would have screwed that up too. So so definitely in line with my original estimate, but a little bit worse than my, um, uh, sorry, for the first 12 months. And 
likely they will get to more downloads and less revenue than I expected. So uh, this is a prediction in May 29th. Um, I don't think Mishko is on board for this one, so I don't have a, I have a comparison there, but the next one I do. Uh, let's see. Oh, the next one's Call of Duty Mobile. So they're sitting at 167 million downloads and a revenue of 52 million. Um, no, frankly, no real signs of life here. You know, my estimate was 200 million downloads and 100 to 150 million in revenue in the first 12 months. I think I'll be a little bit light on the downloads, but based upon my trajectory, you know, even getting to 150 may be a little bit tough for them. So I still think it's between the 100 and 150. So Mishka here insisted that this game was here to stay. That implied that Timmy would get this to be a billion dollar franchise, basically. So again, clearly I was right and Mishka was wrong. And I love the fact he's not here to defend himself because then I could just rip on him the whole freaking time. <laughs> And then I also say that my dinner from Adam is going to be very sweet because he said he would get to 200 million in 12 months, which is not going to happen. So uh, steak, steak, dinner for sure. All right. From Mr. <laughs> Adam. Uh, the next one is Diner Dash. Uh, so Diner Dash was the only one in the portfolio that I thought actually could perform for glue. Uh, they're sitting at 4 million downloads and 20 million, 12 million in revenue. Um, and this, uh, this title is doing pretty well for Glue, you know, obviously clearly at a different scale than these other ones. Uh, but again, it peaked at 3.1 million in August. It's likely down to around 1.5 million in November and falling. So again, this game mirrored the last few di diner dashes, which is exactly what I was saying. It was, was going to come out strong and decline because history repeats itself and the game design is exactly the same. So it's not that, that thing. So um and then the other big ones obviously were the glue <clears throat> forecast so my my prediction way back when was a design home would could would flatline and two that the disney game would be a train wreck uh, and well while <laughs> for first of all they delayed disney to fix the game quote unquote but uh, uh until next year but uh, and and clearly that game is not going to do what they expected it to do and i don't even even with the redesign i think they're contemplating i think it's going to be a train wreck uh, because again, mismatch of IP to gameplay. Um, and then also Design Home is hovering, has been hovering around the same $9 million for the last 12 months is exactly what I expected. Like they just can't grow that franchise because they basically saturated the market. Uh, so those are the big ones that I could kind of see. Um, and I was wondering if Jake, uh, Joseph, do you have any other predictions that we should talk about? Um, just kind of off the top of my head, I mean, we did make the the stock price predictions for Glue. So we predicted last year that when when Glue was at like I don't remember eight to ten dollars, it would come down to like around four dollars by the end of this year. So we're more right than wrong on that one. Uh, we also predicted GameStop. I don't know if you remember that one that they would not be able to execute a buyout, and we were right on that. That's true. Yeah. Uh, we're right about you know network wanting to raise money as, as as you had stated earlier, and we were also right about Fox Next being for sale if if we believe the industry rumors and the news that has been reported. Uh, so yeah, those were you know I, I've been actually quite surprised that most I, yeah almost we're, we're we're batting like a thousand here right like we're right on almost everything. We're freaking no Nostradamus over here in the video game space. <laughs> So, uh, and then besides that, I think we've got a few outstanding predictions. Uh, you know, some of our predictions is that a public company like, you know, Zynga Glue will not buy Fox next. Uh, and then we've got this prediction. Uh, well, I, I've, I've got this prediction on who Scopely will buy. So I, I've emailed Henry Lohenfels at Scopely, who my guess is, and then we'll, we'll find out <laughs> if I'm right about that in the next few months. But uh, yeah, I think that's, 
I know, I know we've got a lot more, but I, I feel like even some of those smaller predictions, we, we've pretty much been right, which is, you know, kind of surprising. Yeah. I, I was trying to think of things that we've gotten kind of inherently wrong, but I haven't, I couldn't think of anything specific that, because, you know, we also predicted the call of duty would grow this, or I would predict that call of duty would grow this year. It looks like that's going to happen. Madden FIFA are growing. Um, I was, yeah, I was right about Ghost Recon. I don't know. So this has this been a good year for me from that perspective. I mean, this is kind of what do I do. So like, I, I would kind of know if I was wrong because I get a lot of flack from my clients if I get something seriously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Good year so far. Uh, we'll see how the rest of the holidays. Uh, turn. And then next year is a big predictions around next-gen consoles, uh, adoption, uh, you know, see where Nintendo Wii goes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Our, oh, our sorry, stadium. sorry, Nintendo Switch. We also had our Stadia prediction, which at least at this point looks like oh my we're God. more right than wrong. I, I, I actually think I wasn't, I, we're not right enough. Like, I mean, this is like, I, I, it is like, again, we already talked about last a few weeks ago or whatever. It's like, it's just watching a train wreck in slow motion. Like you said, it's like, it, it's, it's super painful. It is really painful to watch. Right. Um, and I think I said this the last time, but not only is the uh this launch been a disaster but the quality level of this stadia is terrible like it's like a low to mid-range pc for destiny and it's so dramatically obvious when you when i play it on on steam versus playing it on stadia and it's so disappointing because that i thought they would nail right you know get the 60 frames per second at 4k although i don't even know if that game runs at that level but but the but the visual quality should have been far more uh far better for for the particularly for the audience that they're trying to attract now and so that that's a stark reminder that like this technology may not be ready um and and that was the part where i would say i was wrong where i thought this technology was actually ready and maybe they improve it over time but then i'm reading articles about them like oh yeah developers will optimize their games for this no they won't they're not going to spend one freaking minute of time optimizing around this shit because no one's buying it right why would they actually dedicate any engineers to figure out how to work it on freaking their 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 outdated system it makes no sense and so like when these when when this stuff doesn't work and it's clearly like it's not going to take off you know these publishers cut bait man they got their money from google they're done right we're out right they're not going to bring other games to it they're not going to optimize against their games that they have It, it makes no sense for them to spend even a nick, you know, a nickel to do this stuff. So anyway, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. But it, it really just looks like they're going to probably, unless they just want to come continue to burn money, um, um, you know, just shut this thing down ultimately, and and just again white white label it or something and give it to publishers. But yeah, yeah I, I think that's the tricky part is like all this negative news and all, all the negative reactions that are out there. Are external developers going to invest in it? And then internally, like by the comments that Jade Raymond made, she thinks that they've got years of time to like launch stuff internally, right? So <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's going to be a big problem there. Yeah, no doubt. All right, but enough about Stadia. Okay. Um, anyway, looking forward to getting folks back um, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully we'll get Mishka on next week. Uh, Mishka is probably going to be out for end of the year, but uh, I am starting to line up some some guest hosts. So we'll 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 have some new friends on uh, in the in the coming weeks. Cool. So. Now Mishka can t- can't defend himself. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Sounds good. Have a good Thanksgiving. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.